Zero Hours, Catherine Mather. Ow! Zero Hours! Hello and welcome to Zero Hours Podcast with me, Catherine Mather, where I speak to comedians and creators about the best and worst jobs they've done to get by. Today I'm joined by comedian and broadcaster, Ross McGrain. How are you Hello, doing? Mate. You're very good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, thanks for being on it. Um, it's it helps when people agree to be on it <laughs> yeah. otherwise just keep hearing about your jobs yeah <laughs> I've had a lot but not that many <laughs> um so I mean how uh, uh how well what what's your worst job been shall I just fucking go into it We'll just get straight into it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, no job foreplay for us. Let's get straight in. So I mean, look, I've had a lot of shit jobs. Yeah. Um, and I've I've never been able to hold down a job either. So I would invariably last a few. The, the, I think the the least amount of time I've lasted in a job is a week. Wow. And the longest it, longest was three and a, three years. But the three years was mainly because my other half fell pregnant with my daughter so it was a case of having to stay there but right. that job would have lasted a lot less time and that that's that was probably my worst job I worked uh in a for a company that made glass whiteboards basically that, so, <laughs> so that doesn't make sense to me no so okay so it's basically uh, a sheet of glass any size any color Right. with a sheet of metal stuck to the back of it uh and it's a, it's a whiteboard you can write on it and it's magnetic and companies would have like the whole wall done in, in these like 2.7 meter panels um and it was a job like i got like i said holly my other half fell pregnant with lexi my daughter and uh i was like well, i'm gonna have to i'm gonna have to get something and it's the first thing that come up and it was like warehouse supervisor or something that someone my dad used to know and um, and yeah, I went down for the interview. I mean, this is—I'm I'm, going to go on for a bit here because there's so many little branches to this story. <laughs> I've just realised. Um, so I've gone down for the interview, and it's um, the guy's like uh, sort of very, very brash, like Hugo Boss shirt, Hublot watch on, and you know, this is his empire. You know, this factory, this showroom, and everything else. <clears throat> and uh, we do the interview, and it goes great. And he, uh, as I'm leaving the building goes oh by the way do you drive and I went yeah and then I shut the door and walked out and I didn't drive I didn't have a license <laughs> I just said it was just instinct I had said it because I went into the job I was like what do you fucking say that for didn't think much of it three weeks later I started the job and he's like oh yeah so you know it's gonna involve a bit of driving I'm gonna get you I was like, oh yeah you know like I, I, I have got a license but I, I've, I'm actually I'm actually on a ban right <laughs> and then and then I just fabricated this whole story about how I drove without insurance. And I had to like make up the conversation I'd had with the copper. And, and then it was just basically by the end of it, I was like running this massive drug ring and everything else. <laughs> it, it, yeah, so that happened. So was that that you you couldn't drive or was it that you, did, like, you didn't drive? I didn't have a license. Oh, OK. So, so you I, didn't know I how to. Yeah, I didn't know how to drive. Right, I hadn't okay. passed I my test, but I'd lied. Yeah. For some, like, just instinctively bullshitted him to get the job. We've all done it. And then, and then I had to compound the lie. <laughs> did you, like... So... <laughs> did you use that time to learn to drive? Was that the plan or was there no plan? 
that I was, I had started lessons, you know, and I, and I stupidly, I was like, oh, maybe I can pass in three weeks. Like, this is all on the bus on the way home from the interview. <laughs> but so when I got, like, when I got there, I, I was like, I, I thought, you know, what, what's worse? The first day of the job saying, oh, by the way, I lied about that just so you'd give me the job or just like trying to make something up. And yeah, anyway, so it was an absolute clusterfuck right off the bat. But this job was, the, the, the job itself, we had like these long benches, say about eight or nine of these benches, like, and they were like two and a half metres by 1,200, right? And we would have to put the glass, get the glass deliveries in, lay the glass face down on the bench, put glue on it, put the sheet of metal that had been ordered, pre-ordered, glue it to the thing, then put buckets of sand on top of it and, and just leave them for half an hour and then take them all off and then put them on the van for delivery. I was like running the, the, the warehouse and I had two members of staff. One of them was 86 years old, a uh, wow. chronic hoarder, um, absolute lunatic. Like, anyway, that's another story. And the other guy was lovely bloke, but very, um, very cumbersome. He's like sort of in his 50s and like really interesting guy, uh, I think on the spectrum a little bit. Mm-hmm. And he, but he was like, he was just very clumsy. And this is like a a, a job where you're literally lifting <laughs> in a glass factory. massive sheets of glass. <laughs> and everything was grey. The floor was grey, the benches were grey, the walls were grey, the staff were grey, the office was grey, everything was fucking grey, mate. And the boss was just an absolute bellend. And it was the most, it was the worst it's the worst I've ever had because it was the only time I like I, I was physically I couldn't leave. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I felt properly trapped for the first time. Yeah. Um, and uh, Christ, yeah, it just depressed the living hell out of me. I used to, and I remember getting I got my first Russell Kane tour support date while I was at that job. Yeah. And I got and we and me and John Oakes um, got poached from the community station we were on to Radio Essex while I was at that job. Yeah. So we were like, you know, I would like, I remember doing the Cliffs Pavilion in Southend with Russell Kane, which is like my hometown theatre, 1,350 people on a Thursday night. And then like at seven o'clock in the morning, I was in that factory and I just couldn't deal with the constant highs and lows. It was just such crushing lows. Yeah. Like, like when I... When I'm out there, I'm fucking somebody. And when I come in here, I am absolutely like nobody. Do you know what I mean? It was yeah. Just, yeah, diabolical. It is a really weird feeling, isn't it? When you get like a gig and you're like, I am living my dream. And then you go and you're <laughs> sat on the bus arm and like, you know, you've just got people just screaming and you're like, yeah. I, I, do you know who I am? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <Exactly>. No. <laughs> but yeah yeah I mean it was um it was just it was very soul destroying and obviously very like it was labor so you know I like physically like I've never done anything physical in my life I'm just not that guy Mm. um but so you know it was it was obviously physically uh tough mentally horrendous um but in a way I I think like that job like I really fucking hammered the comedy and the radio stuff in every little bit of spare time I had, you know, in order to get out of that place. 
And when yeah. I eventually did get out of it, it ended on a row and, you know, this whole... I, I, <laughs> so my boss is like, he had, a, he had a temper. And I've got a temper as well. Uh, I like to think that I've, I, I'm definitely a lot more under control of it than what, what he is. He used to have to take, you know, blood pressure tablets and all that because he just used to fucking lose the plot. And like, you know, full disclosure, I used to get on all right with him for the most part. You know, yeah. it, it, we got on in a, in a lot of ways. He was a funny bloke and, and everything else. But it, I just, that, that, the way he used to speak to me was like, you know, my dad never even spoke to me like that. And it was just very difficult for me to take that onslaught on a regular basis. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, one day we were, we would, we'd been doing this massive job for one of the huge banks up in Canary Wharf. And it was like five floors. Um, and they had all the walls done in these glass panels. So they're all like 2.7 metres by something. And there's probably about 700 panels for the three of us to get out. And it's like, oh my you know, Jim, oh, I mentioned his name, but the, the old boy, 86, <laughs> he like would lift the panel and like his whole fucking body's shaking. Like, you know, oh. he's just too old. You can't be lifting stuff at the age that he was. Yeah. So he couldn't, he couldn't lift. So me and John were doing like the, the majority of the work, but I used to do all the ordering as well. So like, we'd get the surveys coming from the teams that had measured up all the, the walls and then I'd have to order the, the glass and then the metal from separate surprise and all that shit. Um, but because you're butting, you're putting these glass panels up against the wall, they've got, a, you haven't got much tolerance. It's got to like, otherwise there'll be steps in it. Yeah. Because it's so expensive and it's like one of the top banks. It's all, everything's got to be spot on. But glass, when you hate this is how boring it is. I want to so just talking about it. <laughs> But glass, when you heat it up in a toughener, it was going to expand, right? So anyway, what I'm saying is it's really hard to keep everything on thing. And we've been grafting to get this stuff out. And one of the panels or something that had been ordered wrong, uh, out of six, 700 panels, one of them, was mm. like I'd put the wrong digit in and ordered it wrong. And he'd come up the top of the little balcony thing and just fucking started screaming at me. And I, I told him to fuck off and I threw the thing out and I walked out and I, I, I smashed one of the glass panels on the way out the yeah. door. And then I come back like half hour later and tidied everything up, tidied all the office out. And I'd been working through like a shoulder injury to get this thing done. My shoulder was hurting, but I just, I just plowed on. And I was like, he can go fuck himself now. I'm signing myself off for a week, knowing that he would have to come downstairs in his Hugo Boss shirt and lug that shit about with them two. Yeah. And see what, you know. Um, so, yeah, that happened. Two days out of my week, my self-certificated week off, I'm playing golf over the <laughs> <laughs> bare shoulder in the sunshine. And um, the plan was I was going to go, but I, I, I had him a notice in over email. And um, he, uh, he, what happened? Yeah, so he, uh, the plan was I was going to work my notice period and then that would give me my last month's wages and, yeah. Thingy. And um and he was like he tried to say that I couldn't come back to work without a doctor's certificate, right? Which is not actually true. Mm. So I was like arguing the toss with him and it, in the end the email I sent him, I was like being really snarky about the fact that I knew how busy I was I, I, I had their computer and I was like, I'll drop your computer back when I've got a chance, but I'm absolutely snowed under at the moment. Um thanks for the thanks thanks for three years of utter misery. Uh, and I, my part in parting, I'll leave you with this. And it was uh, the music video to Leonard Skinner's Free Bird. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, but yeah, dog shit. Yeah. Um, 
I actually so, use that now whenever gigs like I'm having a busy weekend or gigs are shit. I'm always like three years ago you were in that fucking glass factory, mate. <laughs> None of it. This is the dream. Yeah. It's it's nice to have that benchmark, isn't it? I, yeah. I do often wonder what, you know, you've got these uh, very privileged people who've never worked a day in their life and their parents have bought them a flat in the city. Uh, what is yeah. what is your benchmark? like? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I just think it's, uh, I just feel sorry for people who, who, you know, so many people, the majority of people really end up stuck in this cycle of, you know, you have to work. That was always what was drilled into me as a kid was like, you know, my mum has been working at the same bank since she was 16. You know, she's going to be 16 next year, I think. Yeah. So it's like, you know, she doesn't love working for a bank. <laughs> um, but it's like that that whole fear of, you know, you can't give it up because you've, uh, because, you know, you've got bills to pay or whatever else. But actually, <clears throat> when I left that job and because I left... It, it, not in the terms that I'd want it to leave in. Yeah. Um, I was obviously I had to really fucking graft to sort of justify what I what I'd done. Yeah. And, um, and actually, you know, more opportunities came up, and it's the best thing that ever happened because, you know, now I'm just doing the radio and, and comedy, and you know, I'll do what I fucking want on a Monday, mate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so was that the last one, the the last sort of day job before? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was the last day job, and I left it in um, 2018, April 2018. I've done like uh, like little bits of sort of self-employed stuff. I've been I've done like event security on and off for about ten years. Mate, my own security firm that do like uh, they used to do all the big exhibitions at Els Court, and well, they still do, and not Els Court but XL and like yeah. Idle Home, and, and then all the festivals, Glastonbury, Latitude. Uh, big chill and all, all that stuff yeah um and you know they were great that you know I, they were it's, it was weird they were fucking horrendous jobs when you're doing them but like i've only ever got i look back on and it's just funny stories and fond memories but like glastonbury is literally like living in a fucking refugee camp mate it's just <laughs> outrageous very expensive one yeah but no but you're not the security campsite is like a mile and a half away from the festival and it's just full of burly security guards (laughs) you know you do nights and i remember once it was the hottest glastonbury on record and i'd get back at seven o'clock in the morning have to have a fry up for dinner every day because everyone else is having breakfast and then try and sleep in 30 degrees of heat in a tent oh god i got up for my shift after I had three hours sleep, got up my shift, went to have a shower in one of the portable shower cabins, and someone had shit in it, mate. <laughs> shit in it in the day. In the uh, day. Like, who's, how the fuck are you doing that? I, you know, just unbelievable. Anyway. <laughs> so, so, what was, what were your, like, what was your role doing the security? Were you like checking bags or stopping people? No, I was, um, crowd setting? like, different for it like every festivals and every festival and stuff like that like, but for Glastonbury there's like I think there's, at least there was like, I think three different security companies um one that do like the outer gates and stuff one that do the outer perimeter like that which is like a you know a few miles around the site and then there's the actual event security inside um and our company were the outer perimeter so it's all the checkpoints like coming in you know Glastonbury you know it's big have you ever been no 
it's like you obviously you know it's big but until yeah. you see it like there's more people in that festival than there is in the city of bristol oh it's like God. it's to like a quarter of a million people yeah um so yeah so our my job at glastonbury the last time i did it was i was supervising this <laughs> this is a great story as well this uh there, there's a, a a place in glastonbury a position like called taylor's farm right Right. And that what Michael Evis, the owner of Glastonbury, does is it's not even in Glastonbury, it's in a village called Peel, which is like a really sleepy far it's farms, nothing but farms. Yeah. A lot of these people don't really interact with other people other than the other farmers, you know, really rural. Yeah. And I think from what I can gather, Michael Evis basically buys out, like just sends them all away, gives them sends them anywhere they want to go for holiday, and mm-hmm. then pays security to look after their houses and stuff. Okay. But this Mr. Taylor is like he's he was about seven in his seventies, early seventies, and he he was like he weren't all there, like you know, <laughs> that was probably not the most politically correct way of saying it, but he he yeah. was genuinely like there was something wrong with him, and he was totally against the festival and point blank refused to didn't want anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. So and he but because but he would like drive tractors through checkpoints. Like people in the, <laughs> standing in the road, he would just go through it, mate. Like, and he'd be diving out the way. Um, I he, love it. The rumours were that he'd pulled guns on on security guards and stuff because they were they would try and check his passcode. So everyone was under these strict instructions that if it's Mister Taylor, you just don't ask him for anything. If he kicks off, you just let him do what he wants to do. And if you need to call back up, you call back up. Right. But they had to have like the security around his farm was like bigger than any of the other sites. So yeah. my job was, I used to supervise that thing. And I had, I think there was probably about 11 or 12 guards like around it. And then um, one morning I've turned, so the shift changeover was 70, 70 or seven shifts. Mm-hmm. And uh, you'd get a minibus, you'd have your breakfast, get a minibus there. And then you'd, the night shift would jump on the minibus and you'd, you'd get off. And as we pulled up, the, the night shift supervisor and the number two were asleep, <laughs> right? So we've got there, they've tooted the horn, woke him up, like, oh, fucking hell, blah, blah. <laughs> I've come in, I was like, all right, mate, is there anything I need to know? And he's like, oh, no, you know, obviously a quiet night, nothing happened, blah, blah, blah. And as I'm talking to him, we've looked into Taylor's farm, his field, yeah. there's a fucking tent in it. Someone's <laughs> erected a tent inside the field. Oh, my gosh. Like, there's a tent, in, why is there a tent? I'm like, oh, oh mate, I, I didn't even see. I didn't. And So I've radioed control, and I was like, yeah, we've got, there's, someone's pitched a tent in Taylor's farm night shift and missed it and they're like what in the field they're like, yeah, they're right okay we're sending a is there anyone in it it was like we don't know and as I'm on the radio to him Taylor's coming down the fucking thing in his tractor oh no I'm like, yeah Taylor's Taylor's coming now and they're like what now and they're like yeah now <laughs> okay we're sending a response vehicle he's driven into the field straight towards the tent I went he's driving towards the tent I was like oh, okay shit. is there anyone in the tent I was like I don't know if there's anyone in the tent I went, he's, he's going to drive over it and then he drove over the fucking tent, mate. No, no one in it, thank God. Oh, Jesus. But we, he was just, yeah, just an absolute raving lunatic. Yeah, um, I mean, like, I guess that is on brand for farmers. They are very protective of the land. I, I grew up yeah. in the countryside. I, I, like, do not fuck with farmland. Yeah. <laughs> Mate, yeah. <laughs> but like, honestly, zero fucks given by this geezer. He just did not care, mate. He'd run you over, you know. Run, he, he could have killed them people. You yeah, know, if they were in that tent in their sleep. 
But like, oh, I mean, God. I think you have to admire uh, how little you can, because I think, I don't know about you, I get worried how people will perceive me if I, I don't have the correct change in a shop. <laughs> so like, you know, if I don't have the 20 to go with it, <laughs> I'm so sorry. So can you imagine just having the, the I don't know, just just the ability to give that few fucks? It's amazing. Yeah, it's horrible it's quite and amazing. Really, it's that's what I mean. You sort of you you have to kind of respect it in a sense. It's like the guy's are sticking to his guns, mm. doubling down, mate. I'm not having this festival, so he just acts like it's not there. It doesn't matter that there's a huge security operation surrounding him. He just plows straight through it. <laughs> it is my uh, field. <laughs> Yeah. Can you imagine what those people must have been thinking as well? Oh, great. Look, nice, quiet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they wrote this whole area to themselves. Yeah. (laughs) It was like a a little hippie commune, like next to where where we were positioned. Um, And I just like lived there all year round. And obviously, Glastonbury is this massive hitchhiker festival in it. So people travel from like a gate crashing festival, but people hitchhike from all over the country, miles. Yeah. no ticket to try and get in and um th- yeah this little field like this commune they sort of have it as like a like a an unofficial campsite basically and like all like the hitchhikers you get like these really cool interesting you know in- hippie people that have like hitchhiked from like cornwall to fucking glastonbury just to try and get in on the off chance yeah and um yeah they weren't sure of me at first but after I used their film to smoke a spliff on the first day, they knew that I was one of them. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever get any of the, get to see any of the festival? Yeah, we got, um, we got uh, wristbands to to go in. Um, But like, you know, it's, it's not, I'll be honest, Glastonbury is not really enjoyable. It's just like, it's too big. Yeah. Yeah, it's great to see, like, you know, I saw Fatboy Slim, uh, I saw the Gorillas and Snoop Dogg, um, I saw Dolly Parton. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, she was actually awesome. Um, but it's like, it's because the site is so massive, it takes so long, like literally hours to walk sometimes from one stage to another. Right. Um, and I remember when we went to go down and see Fatboy Slim, like we had, it was... Like obviously we all, all lads were all drinking every night anyway and going to bed really late and being stupid and making stupid decisions and like we'd been in the festival the night before and stayed up really late so it was like we were only going to go and see Fatboy Slim he was on at 9 o'clock till 10 mm-hmm. and then we're going to go back to the, the campsite so we've gone we could get a lift down there like in a in one of the response vehicles so that was great take your it's because up a hill so they take you all the way up to the festival and you're driving past everyone and then you just bowl straight in yeah. But like you can't get picked up again. They're not like gonna taxi you around. So <laughs> we watched Fat Boy Slim and me and this guy, lovely bloke, really funny, Mickey the Fish, his name was. Yeah. <laughs> of, course, um, yeah. of course, yeah. <laughs> we were like, right, we are going back. Like the others are gonna stay there, but I was like, we are gonna go back, we need to get our heads down. And we asked one of the other security firms, like we we I managed to get hold of one of the my mates who was driving a response. I was like, Would any chance you could pick us up? He's like, Oh yeah, I'll pick you up from Blue Gate. And um I said to the, this security guy, like, where's Bluegate, mate? He's like, oh, you've had a nightmare. It's right over the other side of the site. 
you know, yeah. we're here, this is Yellow Gate over there and Blue Gate's all the way over there. So we walked, I shit you not, it took three hours and 40 minutes to walk from one side of the site to the other. Oh my God. When we got there, when we got there, it was the fucking wrong gate, mate. It was uh, back where we were. No. So we had to walk all the way back. We left there at about quarter past half past 10. We left that boy slim and we got back into our tent at quarter to three in the morning. Oh God. I think I would have probably just laid down and hoped to die. Uh, if I was in that situation we were so angry do you know what I mean so angry and um yeah it was just it was just an absolute nightmare so yeah I mean I think like Glastonbury although we could go in it was just too much of a pain in the ass really like I saw some good bands there but the best festival I've ever been it was Boomtown Festival in uh Winchester that's just great and Latitude as well Latitude we worked Latitude and and that's like that's fantastic yeah did they so have the... magic mushrooms in their in, in their <laughs> latitude, right? And they they spray paint the sheep like fucking luminous purple and yellow and green and stuff like that. So they're just wandering around the but, but we didn't know this. And we're like we stayed up all night and it's like the morning and me and my mate are sitting like on this chair just having a lovely time watching the sun come up or whatever. And we hadn't said a word to each other for about 45 minutes. And then my mate leans into me and he was like, Can I ask you something? I was like, Yeah, and he was like, Those cows are purple, weren't they? <laughs> <laughs> no, those sheep are perfect. <laughs> Fucking yeah, yeah, there is. Anyway, jobs, not drugs. You see it there. <laughs> well, it was jobs. <laughs> Were you? Um, did you get to do uh, see the comedy tent at Latitude? We are like the understudy, being like, "Don't worry, if anyone's sick, I'm here." I've got <laughs> no, it. well, actually, actually, this was like way before I started like performing stand up. So, um, I don't even think we went to the the. I was working night shift at Latitude, so it was like any of the good stuff that was in the evening I I missed. Yeah. Um but yeah, but yeah, it was a good it was a good festival. Leeds as well. That was uh we did covert at Leeds. Covert. Which is like there was a team of six of us that used to basically just dress up like festival goers and try and find drug dealers. That was the whole job. Yeah. Was, you know, that was that was good fun. Um but yeah, I don't know. It's always like a moral sort of dilemma for me. I'm just like, I don't want to fucking take people's drugs off them. <laughs> <laughs> do you um, take all the drugs off them and then they'd be like, how many dealers did you find? None. None today. It was none <laughs> yesterday as well, wasn't it, Ross? <laughs> and the day before. <laughs> no, to be fair, it was like, you know, you're not, you weren't, you were You were told not to like look for people that are selling a little bit. It was like you were looking for people that are selling loads of it. And then it's, you know... They're just there to mainly gather information about them. Like they get, they tell you whereabouts they think they are, and then we'd go and sort of ask people, do you know, if we can get hold of any of this, get hold of any of that. And then, um, yeah, if you found them, then we'd have phones that we'd text the response vehicle, the uniform guards to come, and and that's it. Mate. That's the end for them. Oh god! But yeah, forever. <laughs> I don't know about forever, but. Um, <laughs> Take her over to Taylor's farm. <laughs> sit exactly in a tent. It. This isn't so bad. <laughs> we just have to sit in a tent. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they were they were interesting jobs. Just just good stories, you know. Yeah, that sounds good. So what was um? Because you said that you weren't performing comedy at the time. Were you uh, involved otherwise? In comedy, yeah, 
Yeah, I've been. Um, my dad used to run um, a club called Churchill's in Southend back in the uh, early nineties, and he set up like one of the. He set up like an alternative comedy night, but it was one of the only alternative comedy nights outside London at the time. Yeah. Um, we had the Joker Club in Southend, which uh, was set up by Martin Treneman and um, who else was it? Martin Treneman, Colin Dench. Colin Dench was like Ross Noble's agent and yeah, uh, you know, TV producer, I think. Um, what did he used to do? Just for laughs, I think he produced that. Maybe it doesn't matter. But anyway, uh, yeah, he set that up, that club up back then, and you know, they all played it. So like he had like Lee Evans, Omid Lee, uh, Harry Hill, Simon Pegg. Mark Lamar, um, and he used to get, it was obviously before email, so all the promo pictures were actual photos that were sent in, and my dad would get them all signed and framed all around yeah. the office. Um, and it, I watched uh, Lee, Lee Evans' first ever video when it came out, my dad bought it home and let me watch it, I was only about seven or eight, and I was just fucking obsessed with it. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, from that point on, I used to like, get my mum to take the stand-up show video, uh, the TV show, which was like the only alternative comedy stand-up show on telly at the time and um when i got to 14 i was i did a business studies gmvq at school was one of my options yeah. and we got to set up a, a business as part of that course called the young enterprise scheme it was like a nationwide thing where kids set up a business basically it's a legitimate business um and you can make profits and sell shares and stuff like that from it and like at I think we were split into two groups and the other group was making candles and like sending them at church uh, at parents evening. And, but I set up a comedy night with our group and my dad's obviously helped me yeah. um, book it. But I had, but I hired a local theatre, 400 seat theatre that's rubble now, unfortunately. Uh-huh. And, um, uh, yeah, and booked Mickey Flanagan's at open <laughs> <laughs> and, and Lee Hurst, Lee Hurst closed. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Greg Burns emceed it and sold it out. So at that point, it was like, well, this is a piece of piss. That's what I'm going to do for a job. So, yeah. you know, I don't need to go to uni or anything because that's what I'm going to do, obviously. Yeah. Uh, so I dropped out of sixth form, um, set up my first comedy club with my dad and Matt Adlington, who's another comedian, very good friend of mine. Uh, and, yeah. Um, yeah, we set up Funny Bunnies in 2005 or 2007 and lost 12 grand in the first year <laughs> oh my god <laughs> yeah and uh like never really made any money out of it you know and um i did that at seven so i weren't even old enough to be in the place <laughs> and uh and i ended up yeah i got i got a job behind the bar in the same venue when i turned 18 and so i like, i've always kind of run nights and gigs yeah to varying degrees of success but only like properly i'd say in the last well probably since I like quit my job really I think when I quit my job I was like right you know the the, the it's obviously easier to I say easy it's not easy but it's, you can make more money out of running a gig than you can out of doing a gig for the most part you know yeah so if, if I'm gonna make a viable career out of it I've got to be able to you know get take on some more gigs um obviously maintaining the quality and the standards and everything but just yeah, so just expanding and, and, and doing stuff like that. So now, but now, you know, sod's fucking law. Now I've got like more gigs, but I've also got more gigs. <laughs> so yeah. It's like a, a plate spinning thing, but 
you know, again, it's not a glass factory, so. Well, yeah. <laughs> so do you think that that's, because I know that, like, um, a lot of com- comedians sort of starting out will start their own night so that they can MC it and then maybe not care quite so much about all other aspects of the night. <laughs> do, you, <laughs> do you think that it is a, a wise thing to do to start? Like, because I always view them as two. I think that, uh, you know, being a promoter is a very different job to being a comedian, and it's a different job to being, you know, running a night and sort of the technical aspects of it and everything. Do do you think that it is a wise thing for people to do? If you know what I mean? Because obviously you had experience, prior experience. Yeah, I, I, I do. I do think it's highly beneficial to your development as a comedian if you can put yourself into a gig regularly that you can MC where you're going to have repeat audience and you're going to have to like force yourself to write and you're going to fail but you keep forcing yourself to do it you know the Alex which is the first and only open mic gig I've ever set up um, was set up for that reason my first gig was for Math Brown who I've known for years and I did Outside the Box Kingston um, with John Oakes as f- for my first gig, and I asked him for advice afterwards, and he was brilliant. He like watched rewatched my video and gave me like bullet points on every gag and how I might be able to expand it and stuff like that. And then, uh, and, and at the end, it was like, look, the one thing you've got that a lot of new acts haven't is you know exactly what it takes to run a proper comedy gig. You should set one up that's open mic and force yourself to MC it. And I hadn't actually thought of it before. So the Alex, I live thirty seconds away. Mm-hmm. so I just went down there and was like look can I set up this gig I won't charge you for it I'll just you know but like you know that said it's like you know if you're not if you're going to run a gig you know really do take time to learn what it takes to run a gig properly because otherwise it's fucking pointless you know you're not going to pay attention to things like the layout of the gig the sound and the light and all that stuff if you can't do the gig properly then don't do the gig in my opinion because I think like you know if you're going to run a shit gig, then it's going to be a shit gig and you're going to have a shit gig and you're not going to actually get any better. And, yeah. and you know, normally people won't come back when it's a free entry gig. The only reason the Alex is as successful as it is is because I've just kept doing it. You know, yeah. just all, we were always there. So, you know, eventually, you know, you build up like we're weekly now. Obviously, we started with monthly, but since we've been weekly, you know, now we've prob- I've probably got about 200 regulars, but they don't all come you know, one will come once a month, some come once in a blue moon, some come once every other show, you know, but it's like, it just means that now the gig is like 30 plus audience pretty much every every Sunday. Yeah. But it's been so crucial to my development. You know, I'm like just forcing myself to MC that gig. I, I feel so comfortable MC in any room you put me in. And, mm-hmm. you know, although I don't want to be pigeonholed as an MC for the rest of my life, it's certainly a lot easier to get work as, as an MC there's a much smaller pool of good MCs than what there are good comedians. It's a completely different skill. Yeah, I know I've worked in comedy clubs where like the MCs pulled out last minute and it's like, name your price. If you know, if, if you're a good MC who's available on a Saturday night, you know, yeah. and, and you're needed, they'll Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's the major- it's the majority of, of my work of, of the gigs that I do, but you know, you tend to get paid a bit more if you're emceeing. Um, and you can keep doing the same gig over and over again. I think like that's a big thing that people forget is that if you're doing a set, particularly at one of the big clubs or the big promoters, 
you know, you, you're not going to be doing that set twice a year. You know, you might do if you're lucky, but generally speaking, you know, it's going to be another year before you're back in there again. Yeah. Um, whereas if you're an MC, you can go back to the same gig every every fucking night if you want to, you know. Yeah. Um, so I do think, you know, if you can run a gig properly, then it's it's definitely worth doing if you're a new act because, you know, it's really hard to get MC experience. But even if you don't want to be an MC, just having the experience to kind of trust your feet and like just, you know, trust that you're funny and just, you know, say things and, and just know that what comes out will be funny. If you can get to that point, that's only going to aid your set. You know, my set is so much more, because I think like the best way of delivering material is when you kind of make, you make it feel like a conversation, right? It's sort of like, it's not supposed to feel scripted or, um, you know, it's meant to feel like it's made up there and then, isn't it? Yeah. And I think if you if you can develop a good, you know, the skill set for, to be a good MC, then and you can start to like dip in and out of the audience during your set and like crowbar that into material, and I think it just makes you it just it just it just makes you a better all round comic. Yeah. Yeah, I think because I, I guess the, the the main thing that people are frightened of. What is hecklers, isn't it? You know, when yeah, you're starting, yeah, yeah. and I think that if you can talk to people on um, there, you know, like when it's hey, what's your name, where are you from, <laughs> sort of talking to people, <laughs> yeah. then you, when someone throws you a curveball, you know, tell us a joke or whatever, you're not like, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. It, it's not as frightening, is it? You can then no. just deal I think, with like, it. That's it's, it, it is, you know, it is you overthink it too much and that's mm-hmm. what makes the, the panic set set in i think like once you get what mc and regularly does is it makes you just trust your your feet which is what obviously teach you in improv yeah. um which sounds wanky at the time but it's like actually i did improv before i did stand up and that that's a different kind of fear when you do your first improv show you know, once yeah. you do it, you realise, oh, fuck me, that is actually easy. You know, it's a reason why people, it's not easy. That's like, you know, good improv. There's some great, like the show, the showstoppers are fucking amazing, the improvised yeah. musical. And I've just starred in an improvised pantomime with a couple of the showstoppers down here. And it was just incredible. But like, you know, base level sort of wanky, you know, I'm a tree kind of improv. <laughs> it's like, the, you know, it's when you're in seeing a gig and someone heckles you, and you come back with something quick, even if it's not funny, like like your mum or something, like the most basic of heckle comeback, people just erupt because it's like that to them feels like this magic that is just for them that's never yeah. going to happen again or recreate. It's probably one of the reasons why I got so fucking obsessed about it. I was like, I'm never, ever letting that happen again, you know? Yeah. Just, it was the worst I've ever felt because it's like I didn't, I didn't just feel like embarrassed because I had nothing for him and what he said was funnier and it just like totally destroyed me yeah but I also I was like I'm MC in this gig that I'd booked it was a pro gig and I've just completely fucking killed the room dead and now I've got to bring you know and, <laughs> and I just then go back on <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly yeah um so you know it, it is uh but you know like anything you either have that experience and fucking run away from it or you bite down on the mouth guard and just get better at fighting back yeah what did they say what was do you remember what it was you no know i can't even remember i was trying to recount this story the other day someone asked me what my worst experience on stage was and it was that 
it, it was nothing it was nothing major but it was like he I think he was talking at the bar and he was like a, uh, he was from Manchester and he was like a, a contractor that was staying in the area and um, I can't remember but I said something to try and make him stop talking and he just come back with this witty sort of fuck off that he, he threw out there and um and like people around him sort of like gasped and laughed and I was like uh, <laughs> yeah um oh well you know you fuck off <laughs> yeah just felt I just I just felt like I wanted to fucking die mate it's horrible yeah um, but yeah you know touch wood I think like the difference is now is like when you first start you don't you're not really when you're on stage you're not really in it you know what I mean you're kind of in this bubble where you're remembering everything and you're just like going through the motions but once you like you've been doing it for a few years and you're comfortable in your own skin it's like if something happens in the room that's like out like last night we had this drunk guy come into it I was doing a gig last night really poor attended um probably because of the storm a lot of people had cancelled yeah Um, but only fucking six or eight people I haven't done a gig with that few people in such a long time um, and the people that were there were nice, but like the and the, but the venue were like, when, if someone coming for a drink, they're like now trying to drag them into the comedy, which is like, you know, when it's at the end of the night, don't bother, you know, it's like you, they've missed yeah. that journey. These people were drunk, and the guys like walked in, and I was like, oh, good evening, you know, come on, I'm on stage. I was like, come in and sit down, and and he's like, oh, when's the comedian going to come on and fucking all this, and, I, and then started like, and I was like, all right, don't come in here and you know start fucking giving it, mate, just sit down and. You know, and he, and he shouted something else out, and I, and I tried to defuse him. Was like, "What do you do for a living?" He's like, oh, "I'm a comedian." I was like, "No, you're not. You're a dickhead. You've come in here, <laughs> like, you know, all this ego and stuff. Like, just, just fucking bring it down, mate." And then he got up and like walked up to the stage, like stood in front of the stage, like in front of me, like with his arms. Like, oh yeah, you know, I'm a fucking comedian, and I just fucking pushed him. I was like, "Get the fuck <laughs> who do you think you are?" But it's like in that moment, I think like, I, I would have shriveled up when I first started. Yeah, but like at the moment, it's like now it's actually, you know, you're you are taking a piss, and I am going to tell you very abruptly to sit the fuck down or fuck off. Because, yeah, because you, know, you let someone like that take that control of that room, and you know the headliner would have had a terrible gig. Yeah, <laughs> it's um, it's incredible that people feel like they can behave that way, isn't it? Because can yeah. you imagine like any other job? where people think that, like, you want to be disrespected. I I remember doing one, and there was this guy who managed to, like, corner all of us, and, like, individually, because he'd been heckling, and, you know, the MC had played along, put him down, okay, we are going to actually ask you to leave if you don't show up now. (laughs) You know, like, the different layers of it. And then... um, Compare's (laughs) flowchart. Yeah. (laughs) We'll begin with this. No, but seriously, mate, fuck off. And he, uh, like, he he cornered me outside the toilets and went, if you were a comedian, and I'm like, I mean, I'm on next, but okay. (laughs) Wouldn't you want people to heckle? And I was like, well, no. (laughs) No, and he, yeah. he couldn't understand it and yeah, I that is, it's the yeah. most common misconception isn't it with, with what, mm. what we do I think like the old school way of doing it like, in the social clubs and stuff like that where you know kind of borrowed everyone's material and and all that stuff it was like that was that was part of the culture to like mm-hmm. heckle and banter they think they're helping you know yeah. 99% of the time whenever there's been a problem in the audience they think they're doing you a favour mm-hmm 
and it's like you know it's far, like it's, you know it's not fine and heckling is not is never okay but you know if they're going to do it and you know you come back and you put them in their place and then they shut up fine you yeah. know nine Perfect. times out of ten if you if, if, if you're worth your salts then that's going to add to the night anyway and and actually one of the things I do when I'm doing like a gig that looks like it could be re- like rowdy or whatever is scan the room at the beginning and try and find the alpha males in the room, like the, the cluster of like the group of, of alpha males. And they'll be the first people I'll speak to right off the bat. And yeah. I'll like take the piss out of one of them, you know, just take their pants down a little bit while they're still sober. And because, you know, alpha males don't mind a bit of banter, but they don't, they don't want to be embarrassed in front of their mates. So once you like, sort of let them know that I'm the comedian, I'm, I'm funnier than you, that, you know, they would tend to just shut up for the rest of the night, you know. Yeah. But I think, that, you know, it is important that when you've got people like that in the audience that you, you do deal with it because, you know, if you, do, if you let them have a fucking inch when they're pissed, then it's got that, that can derail a perfectly great gig once they've had too yeah. many drinks and they lose more of their self-awareness yeah you know, that's, it's, it's like you, you've got a, you have got to kind of stamp it out pretty early and it's difficult it's tough it's tough to know you know we've all been there where like someone's heckled you and you've come back and maybe you've gone a little bit too hard and it's like and the audience don't get behind it and now it's yeah. like now it's just me totally cutting off somebody like, <laughs> you know. yeah and it's a horrible, that's a horrible feeling. And, you know, I always reference it. It's like, look, if you don't laugh, that makes me look really bad. You know, got, <laughs> I know, you know, I'm misjudged. <laughs> so it is very, it's very difficult to kind of find the line sometimes. But Yeah, and also how it can turn quite nasty. It can get, you know, people can get aggressive. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. I've um, been threatened a couple of times after gigs. Like, I had to leave out of fire exits and stuff because... <laughs> You know, someone heckled, yeah. I've absolutely taken their pants down, everyone's laughed at them, and now it's like, that's the local hard nut, and he's mm. pacing around them outside in the lobby waiting for me to come out. Um, yeah. I had one of the Alex ones where like, a guy had been talking throughout the whole gig. This is actually a great example of how not to deal with this sort of situation. Um, he was like with a group of girls, and they were sort of like, they were fine, but they were like looking on their phones and, and sort of chatting quietly amongst themselves. And... Um, I had sort of mentioned it once to them and they quietened down. And then I bought on an act. I won't say who it is, but I bought on an act, uh, a new act, newish. And he just went too fucking aggressive too early. Mm-hmm. Like, just went straight for the shut the fuck up. Yeah. Um, when they started. And he just didn't have the tool set to deal with it. So, and I could see with my experience working in security and nightclubs and everything else, I can see, I can tell when someone's like genuinely about to fucking kick off or yeah. when they're like just it's all bravado you can generally tell and I clocked this guy and I just watched his eyes change and now he was like tracked to beam on this guy's head right yeah so, so this this act come off and I went on and I was like I just wanted to give the guy the option to go because I thought like he felt he looked like he felt uncomfortable now so I was like no, I'm not, you know, it's, um, it's absolutely fine, mate. It's no problem. I don't think you're being that disruptive, but, you know, obviously, like, you, you want to have a chat and that's fine, but could you, you know, I'm just giving you the option to leave because there's going to be another 20 minutes for the interval. Mm-hmm. And he's flown out of his chair, like, where the, the Alex, you've done the Alex, obviously, like, the stage yeah. is here and the, the door is, like, there, yeah? Yeah, next so He walked up, flung the door open, and then turned around and looked at me and he's like, come outside a minute. And I'm like, 
I'm I'm a bit busy at the moment, actually, mate. I'm like, <laughs> what? I'm sort of laugh, right? <laughs> and he's like, no, fucking come outside. Like, come outside now. I want to talk to you. And I was like, I'm not, I ain't fucking coming outside to get punched in the head by you. I'm, I'm on stage, <laughs> you know, working. And he's like fucking flown out. He had like that three mile stare, you know what I mean? Just yeah. Like straight through. Um, and anyway, he was waiting outside for me for like the whole rest of the show on his own. Yeah. And it turned out he was this like absolute lunatic that had just come out of prison. Oh, he made no. like front page news on like the local papers and all this stuff and was just, but like the difference is that, is that I reckon if, if that act hadn't have just like totally mugged him off mm. the way he did in front of everybody, you know, he would have been able to read the situation a bit better and, and it wouldn't have derailed the night the way it did. Yeah. I remember saying to the act afterwards, I was like, you almost got my head kicked in then because you just, you yeah. know, just went a little bit too far. And I get it, it's, but it is difficult if you you yeah. feel like you should deal with it. Yeah. But, you don't you don't know. It, I guess it is a skill that you um you develop. Yeah, over um <laughs> yeah, over a long period of time. <laughs> yeah. And I think you can always tell uh the act who I think there are two ways of doing comedy. You can either travel around the country gigging in roughest but and nice places and learn yeah. how to do it. Or you can hire a venue and write a show and do that. And <laughs> yeah. I think you can always tell the Ricky Gervaises who haven't, um, you know, almost got their head kicked in at a train station. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because then they go out and they say these jokes and do these routines. And you're like, if you had done the, you know, the circuit, you yeah. would, the repercussion would be someone follows you back to a train station at night on your own. Exactly. And you got to yeah. deal with that. Like, so <laughs> watch your yeah. mouth. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny, actually, because some of them acts that I've seen, uh, like, you know, again, I won't name them, but they're, they're very good. They're very funny, and they're like, yeah. you know, on telly and at the top of their game and stuff. But I've seen them in like clubs, and and just struggle. You know, when the room is not fully attentive, mm-hmm. and you know, a comedy crowd listening, watching, it's like you know, it's a university gig, it's like 150 students in there. It's quite rowdy. Mm-hmm. They haven't actually got a plan B, you know, because they haven't had that experience of of just eating shit for a little while. You know, it does. Uh, just give you much broader shoulders and you know and ultimately it was you know me and John in the early days we did our gig our first gig together we would like just do any gig like locally we were like doing he used to work for a bike shop and there was like people that would do like sponsored bike rides and they'd want to put on a fundraiser at a curry house and John would be like oh we'll come down we'll do some stand-up and improv and we'd do like stand-up in the first half and improv in the second and just get paid in food you know we did fucking yeah. loads of them but it's like it got it's at a point now where it, like literally nothing phases me at all like no no room is unplayable I don't ever walk into any situation and think oh my god this is I, I, you know it's, it just doesn't phase me obviously I want to have nice gigs and do nice gigs but when you get a gig where you know it's a it's a really rough pub and there's no seats and there's just a mic in the middle of the room and a load of Thursday night drinkers in there. Yeah. You know, it doesn't scare me the way it would, you know, back in the early days, maybe. Do you remember the Traitor's Gate gig? No. Did we do that? 
No, what was that one? Graham Matthews, um, who's another good mate of mine, used to book it for this pub. Um, but it was like the first night was brilliant. It was like a really sort of like rough looking pub in, in Grays. There was a sex shop opposite it called Fifty Shades of Grays. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this was like the epitome of that. Like you, you walked in and there, there wasn't that. It was like a narrow sort of bar with a pool table over that end and then come around in an L shape. And then there was just a mic stand like in front of the bar, basically. No seats or anything around it, just people in the pub. But the first night was really busy. Like everyone rocked up to support this gig. And yeah, it was really rowdy, but it was like, it was lovely. And I think I closed the first one for him. Yeah. And, it, and he had like a, a paid compare and a headliner and then like six open spots or something. Um, and you know, the compare, like I compared quite a lot of them for him and the headliners, generally speaking, would do all right. You know, it's like a really intimidating gig to look at though. Yeah. Um, and when you can like, consider that, you know, there's not a great deal of alpha males in comedy really, you know, I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but there's a lot of, you know, I could, I just used to see the fucking fear in some of these act guys <laughs> when they were like, would walk in like that, that table of acts used to look like the, opening scene in Saving Private Ryan you know <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah it was just it was just a, I'm a full, full believer in stories not standards right I fucking love a shit gig just as much as a good gig just for different oh, reasons yeah. right? <laughs> like the, the story you know when I see like when a couple of groups of comedians when people text me look at the state of this and oh this has happened now and oh now dogs come in and it's like I'm gutted I'm not there experiencing that with them you know that's the one thing about comedy is that we all kind of go through that shit together and it's like a real bonding thing I love it like that's that's very much what the the traitor's gate was I did it so regularly because I was just obviously I don't mind a few quid to do comedy but it was like just fucking hilarious mate to watch some of the people in here I think um Andy Zapp um you know Andy obviously yeah um, he he's I mean he's he cracks me up anyway, but he had like this girl would like walk past with uh two WKD blues in her hand and like heckled Andy just bolt, <laughs> walking straight past him, so he's like been his usual self and I told her to fuck off or something right, and it turned out that her dad was in there playing pool and was like the local fucking nutcase, oh, so yeah. he come up fucking just threatened to stab uh, Andy Zap with a pool cue. While Andy's on stage, and he's like, "Oh, all right, mate, all right, all right. <laughs> you know, it was just, uh, oh, just, and then like, hope... like is it always like this? <laughs> I hope he got his harmonica out as he was trying to talk yeah. him down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I, I know you understand me, but how about a tune? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's oh. always great. I think uh, the last uh, difficult gig that we did together was the one a man was sat with his arms folded in the middle and no one had done especially well and he just went no to me (laughs) i don't know just some guy south london um i do remember that i think it's before but no but um i i do i do kind of enjoy those ones where your expectations are managed and you just yeah. like, I, I can't win this one, so I'll have a nice yeah. story from it instead and enjoy yeah. the greener banter. Yeah. 
so, uh, so, I mean, to end, uh, and I think I might know the answer, but what has your best job been? The best job been? Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously working, I don't really call, like, radio and comedy work really I can't you know it's yeah. not fucking work it is, words. yeah well it, it, it is obviously there's an element of work to it but I just um I, can't, I just can't fucking think of it that way I just don't <laughs> when I think work I think like you know j- proper jobs you know day jobs it's a um, shame that, say, isn't it I'd say my the best job I ever had um was probably working for um I worked for a company called Yellow Media, which is no longer um, operating, but they uh, that was how I got into radio. Okay. They, they ran like an online radio station, but they also taught uh, kids that had been um, either expelled from school or through pupil referral units and stuff. Um, that job was obviously really rewarding, but it was also like super laid back there and, and I got to like learn radio. Yeah. And... Um, there was like a production company based in the same building that used to create adverts for the radio. And the guy that owned that company is now the program controller at Radio Essex. Oh, so when, when he took on that job and, and me and John, we were, we were hosting breakfast on a community station while I was at that glass factory. Um, when he got that job, he was like listening to us and then he brought us over. So that job just for the, like it was rewarding, obviously, because you're like that. You've got kids that just don't engage in a normal school environment, and you're, you know, you're actually getting results out of them. That was obviously super rewarding, but also because it kind of like I never really thought radio was a viable career option. It was just something I did for a laugh, you know. I yeah. had comedy I wanted to do, um, but that opened the door really, and sort of I was doing like comedy shows on Saturday afternoon on online station. And, and uh you know building that sort of knowledge and, and then networking there got me the community station job and they set up this fm community station and and then radio essex and you know now we do weekend breakfast on there um which is like saturday and sunday eight till 12 uh, we cover weekday breakfast whenever they're off and we cover drive time whenever they're off and and, and make the fucking pas that we get out of it is just outrageous yeah and it's obviously benefited my gigs locally because you know, I think this, that's one of the reasons why another one, one of the reasons why the Alex is doing so well is because people are coming now just to see me because they listen to the show on the radio, yeah. which is why I'll never get my head around it. But they fucking, you know, they, they do come out and support the gigs. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and, you know, in particular, like during lockdown and stuff, it just kept, it keeps that, keeps you from going mad because you, you, you're still kind of, being funny and making stuff up on, on the fly and you get that kind of high pressure bantery environment but um but yeah that and I worked at Adventure Island and that was good yeah <laughs> what were you doing at Adventure Island I used to work on the go-karts nice I basically did naffle Catherine is what I did and that's why it was my favorite job I'd like you know during the week when there was no one in there there was nothing to do so we'd just like race the go-karts around ourselves and chill for most of the day and then um, and then when it was busy, they used to hire in like extra people, and they would like just do the job to the letter. And it's like, oh, surplus <laughs> requirements. I best go and sit in the workshop for a bit. And I'm also here. Lazy shite. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Well, I think that's our time. Um, it has been lovely. But before you go, is there anything? Where can people find you? And, and, and if you anything you'd like to plug? <laughs> yeah. Well, 
Yeah, I'm on all the social media, Ross McGrain, M-C-G-R-A-N-E. Uh, the Ross McGrain on Instagram. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it, really. If you're in Essex, I run gigs, a little smash comedy. Um, Very good. Or my daughter won't eat, and that'll be on you. <laughs> yeah, you absolute bastards. <laughs> <laughs> no, thanks for having me. It's been lovely. Thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. I'm going to plug one of my things as well, because I always ask people, and then I f- completely forget my stuff. never advertised a single thing but I'm doing uh, Cambridge Fringe Uh, I'm doing a show called Scream Inside Your Heart um, and it's at the Boathouse at three o'clock on St George's Day which is the 23rd of April Um, sounds shit mate (laughs) yeah it's really far away (laughs) did you know I had I heard a fact apparently um you know like the the term to plug something it was like a, a guy it was like Lord Ian Plug or something was his name and he was just like so good at um selling himself that that's where the the term to plug something came from really yeah yeah it's just well, that is interesting marketing dude I don't know his name <laughs> <laughs> it certainly wasn't. Lardy and Plug, but it was his surname is Plug. Yeah. The geezer out of Bash, Bash Street Kids in the Beano, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. A bit of a niche reference. <laughs> Go and get your old uh, copies out. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, take care. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>